Today, uh, we're going to begin a new teaching series, and uh, if you brought your Bibles, uh, you can open them up to 1 Corinthians. Um, next weekend, I'm, I'm actually going to be out of town. A, a friend of mine, Gary Holloway, is going to be teaching for me. I'm going to be doing a wedding in Pensacola, Florida, and uh, I, I'm always asked couples when they get married, where, where are you going? What are you doing for your honeymoon? And the, and the couple I'm marrying next weekend, they're actually going to Greece for two weeks for the honeymoon. And I thought, that seems like a really good choice. <laughs> that seems amazing. All right, so let me ask you, have uh, uh, any of you ever been to Greece? Anybody? All right, we got a couple hands. All right, more specifically, have you been to Corinth? Anybody been to Corinth? Okay, awesome. She's lying. You can't trust her at all. Just kidding. All right, so let me show you where Corinth is. Here's a map. All right, so this is the bottom of Greece. All right, so kind of over here is the boot, is Italy, and kind of over here on the other side of Athens is, is Turkey, and Corinth is right there in the middle. Uh, Corinth is, uh, is still there today. You can, uh, you can go and visit it. It is an isthmus. Is How do you say that word? It's isthmus. I don't know. What, you know what it is. But where it sits on that little stretch of land, you see it's just a tiny piece of land between two massive bodies of water. It's only four miles wide, and that's exactly where Corinth sits. Go ahead and show that next image. All right, so here is what Corinth looks like. Pretty amazing, right? So in the ancient world, to keep from having to sail all the way around that body of land, which had some really kind of, kind of a, a nasty capes. So there's a cape called Cape Matapan that's one of the most dangerous capes in all of the Mediterranean. So what would happen in the ancient world, and happens now, is that ships would come to Corinth, unload all their cargo, and just carry it four miles across the land and put into the body of water on the other side. Are you with me? All right, so... Uh, this four miles over land saved more than 200 miles of sailing. And this is why the city of Corinth is there, right? You guys get this. Uh, today, they actually have the Corinthian Canal. So you don't have to carry your stuff across land anymore. They actually dug a canal, which seems really, really cool. Did you see a canal when you were in Corinth? Stop lying. <laughs> oh, yeah, I saw. Oh, no, I'm just so yeah, the, the Corinthian canal is there now, but before, like the, it, in the time of Paul, ships would come and they'd land on one side, carry everything over to the other side, save a long sea voyage. And Paul spent a, a lot of time in Corinth. We think maybe at least 18 months, uh, maybe the longest he spent anywhere other than Ephesus. And uh, Paul uh, has spent a lot of time in Corinth and, but now he is writing a letter to the people of Corinth, specifically the church of Corinth. He writes a letter, multiple letters, to the Corinthians. So I wanted to give you just a little bit of, this is kind of where we're going today. I want to give you a picture of, of what Corinth looks like and some of this. And, and Paul is, is probably not handwriting his letter, or this is just Adam's, this is just fun information for you. He's probably not handwriting. What he's doing is he probably has a secretary who is writing things for him. So Paul is thinking about probably a really specific issue that the church at Corinth is facing, 
And he is, uh, imagine, uh, do you ever walk and think at the same time? Or is that too dangerous? <laughs> so when I have to, if I'm dictating a letter to somebody and I'm thinking about a specific problem, I'm probably pacing, going back and forth. And that's what Paul's probably doing. And, and his secretary is, is frantically trying to scribble things down. But if you read Corinthians, like uh, both letters, it's not like everything like perfectly lines up or is perfectly clear. Like a, like a stream of thought, he kind of jumps in and out of some different ideas. Uh, let me ask you this. When was the last time you wrote a letter? Not an email. Not a text message. Yeah, I don't remember either. But there's something about a letter that's kind of deep and personal, right? Like, uh, uh, especially if you're, in a, if you're in a deep place, like, uh, I don't know, letters, pen, and ink, and paper, maybe it just means, it means a little bit more. And that's, what, that's exactly what Paul does. He sends a letter to the Corinthian church, to his friends at the Corinthian church. But I want you to know that uh, Corinth, especially at this day and time in the ancient world, Corinth was a city with a reputation. All right, so uh, what's the worst city you can think of? Vegas, Vegas okay. Detroit. Detroit. <laughs> uh, What's the worst city? So I'm, I'm an Auburn fan, so for me, the answer is Tuscaloosa, right? That's right. Can I get an amen? To t- anyway, in terms of greed and sin and immorality, like uh, uh, Corinth was a city with a reputation for a couple of reasons. First, look, look at what it is. I mean, Corinth is positioned for greatness, right? The center of the world, the center of trade, the center of travel, the center of commerce, Right? Every ship coming back and forth, carrying goods and people. And I don't know if this is a, is it racist to say this is a sailor town? You know what I'm saying? Like, sailors kind of had a reputation even, even then. Um, it was known uh, for more than that. It was known as a city of vices. And even to, uh, it, it was actually in the Greek language, uh, if you called someone a Corinthian, it was like, dude, you're being such a Corinthian right now. It, w- it was mean to be, a, um, it, was, it would be almost like saying you're a prostitute. That's what it would, it, that would, it is what it would equate to. It, it was like you are nasty and gross and making horrible decisions with your life, right? You're being such a Corinthian. And this came from a, from a bigger idea. Go ahead and show that next slide, Zach. All right, so just outside the city of Corinth, there is the Acropolis of Corinth, right? Yeah. Which is just a big hill. And on top of this big hill that overlooks the city of Corinth on this four-mile stretch of land, on top of this big hill was a temple, and it was the Temple of Aphrodite. You guys know Aphrodite. And this temple of Aphrodite had over a thousand priestesses who worked at this temple. And when the sun sun went down, these priestesses at the temple of Aphrodite would come down the mountain into the city of Corinth, filled with lots of sailors and travelers, and they would practice their religion. Is that fair? (laughs) Are you with me? Right? Do you get what I'm saying? Corinth is a city with a reputation. Uh, when I went to, it's been a long time ago, but uh, uh, when I went to Vegas, uh, 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 actually I was in 
theological grad school, and my wife and I went on vacation to Vegas. I don't know what we were thinking. Um, <laughs> Vegas is not the family city that they say it is. Um, but when I was in Vegas, like one of the things that happened was uh, when you would walk down the sidewalks, and everybody's walking, there were people on the sidewalks holding cards, and they could make this popping sound with the card. They're called uh, card poppers or snappers. And as you would walk by, I would hold Amy's hand. They would come behind me, and they would put these cards in my pocket. And the cards were always some advertisement for a strip club or an escort service or something like that, right? Uh, And they're everywhere. They're popping these cards. And so that's kind of the picture I have of Corinth, this sin city. Now, here's the issue. Paul is writing to a church that is in Sin City. And the reason he is writing to a church in Sin City is because all of a sudden the church is beginning to take on the values of the city it lives in. Have you ever seen this happen where a church begins to look more like the culture that it's in than the kingdom of God it's called to be. Here's the kind of stuff Paul is dealing with. Uh, I'll just give you a quick picture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9-11, through 11, here's what he says. He says, Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or male prostitutes, or practice homosexuality, or thieves, or greedy people, or drunkards, or abusive, or cheap people. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, some of you were once like that. But now you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So, the church in Corinth is facing some difficult things. They're stuck in a city with a reputation, and Paul is writing to them, and part of his writing to them has heavy, heavy emphasis on the Spirit. That's the last thing he said. Remember, the Spirit of God is in you. There's a Spirit of the world, but there is a whole other Spirit given to you. And this spirit is pouring out into the corporate worship of this church. In fact, uh, Paul gives at least four chapters in the middle of 1 Corinthians, chapter 11 through about 14, where he talks specifically about how the Holy Spirit is manifesting itself in their corporate worship time. uh, Let me read you a little bit of chapter 12, the, the first 11 verses. Paul says this, he says, Now, dear brothers and sisters, regarding your question about the special abilities the Spirit gives us, I don't want you to misunderstand this. You know that when you were still pagans, you were led astray and swept along in worshiping speechless idols. So I want you to know that no one speaking by the Spirit of God will curse Jesus, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. He said there are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but it's the same spirit as the source of them all. There are different kinds of service, but we serve the same Lord. God works in different ways or maybe mysterious ways, but it is the same God who does the work in all of us. 
A spiritual gift is given to each of us so that we can, what are those three words? Help each other. Kind of like this. To one person, the Spirit gives the ability to give wise advice. To another, the same Spirit gives a message of special knowledge. The same Spirit gives great faith to another. And to someone else, the one Spirit gives the gift of healing. He gives one person the power to perform miracles and another the ability to prophesy. He gives someone else the ability to discern whether a message is from the Spirit of God or from another spirit. Still, another person is given the ability to speak in unknown languages while another is given the ability to interpret what is being said. It is the one and only Spirit who distributes all these gifts and He alone decides which gift each person should have. So we landed on some of this because uh, for us as a church, we have a growth track. There's four steps that we ask everyone to take about uh, believing in Jesus and committing to be a part of a church and, and uh, uh, following your spiritual gifts and, and making disciples. And the fourth step of our growth track is all about the Holy Spirit. We believe that we want you to identify, uh, if we can help you identify your spiritual gifts, you'll move into a real season of growth and fulfillment. So I want to spend uh, this next season talking a little bit more about the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts specifically. Uh, and, and so what I'm going to give you is a, just a couple of theological ideas about the Holy Spirit. And then later I'll tell you how much I don't know. You, some of you already know that. If you look carefully at uh, 1 Corinthians and, and throughout the New Testament, the first thing we see when we see the Holy Spirit and, and see its manifest, manifestations, when we see spiritual gifts, is the, maybe the first thing we should recognize is that we are not alone. Maybe it seems like a simple idea, but um, the Corinthians, even if you look in the first verse of, of what he says, he says, look, I know you're asking questions about these spiritual gifts. I don't want you to understand. Let me, let me, let me tell you how the Spirit works. This is a little bit different from us because the Corinthians already believed that the Spirit world existed. Do you? Think about it. They had no doubt that there, were, that there were evil spirits, but there was also a spirit of God. And all of them were competing for their time and their energy and the focus. And, and I'm not 100% sure that our, even our churches today recognize that we live in a profoundly spiritual world. And in that place, God is at work. And he has given us his spirit to see his plan and purpose realized. And so, first off is to recognize when we talk about the Holy Spirit that, hey, we're not alone. And then the second job is, or the second thought about the Holy Spirit is to recognize that we actually, through the power of the Holy Spirit, have a job to do. All right, so here's the big warning sign of Christianity. The big, the big warning sign, which I would tell you, danger, 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 danger. The, the real danger to your Christian faith is lack of movement. The real danger to your Christianity is maybe lack of real, meaningful 
change. And I think one of the things that the Spirit does is the Spirit moves us from inactivity to activity. The Spirit moves us from being consumers to contributors. The Holy Spirit helps us to fulfill and move into our God-given purpose. Here's what I think about the Spirit. The Spirit of God guides. He provides. Where the Spirit of God is, He, he calls us to do uh, uh, what He calls you to do, He equips you to do. Uh, God, I don't think, uh, and sometimes we get this a little bit sideways. Uh, sometimes we think about, well, my spiritual gift are all of the things that I'm really good at, right? Which may be true, and I don't deny that, that you have your strengths, but I really think spiritual gifts operate outside of your area of strengths, and there's a good reason for that. You know what it is, because if you only operate in the area of your strengths, if you only operate in the areas that you're incredibly comfortable in, who is likely to get all the glory for that work? But if you operate outside of an area of your known strength, who is likely to get the glory? Look through Scripture. God doesn't choose the best speakers or the noblest. He's kind of the champion of choosing the least from the least tribe, right? To make his glory great. And so I think there's a real danger of, of, of inactivity. I think the Spirit is compelling us and urging us and pushing us, pushing us out there. And I, and I don't think he needs your strength or, or even your willpower. He just needs your availability. It's something we say here sometimes. God honors your availability. Do you believe that? If you simply say, God, I want you to use me today, do you think that he will and that he would? But do you think that he will and he would only in the ways that you feel comfortable in? <laughs> no, I think God always provides for his purpose. He has given us himself, and at the same time, he requires yourself your whole self. And to what end? There is a God. He has a job for me to do. To what end? What exactly is the purpose of this spirit and these spiritual gifts? I think the Holy Spirit's deepest desire, I think if the Holy Spirit is compelling you and moving and active in this world, if the Holy, Holy Spirit has one push greater than any other, it is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. I love that, that Paul says, Paul says that, you remember in what he says in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, no one can curse Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And at the same way, no one can say that Jesus is Lord unless they have the power of the Holy Spirit, right? And, and what he's saying is that, is that uh, um, this, the work of the Holy Spirit is all about completing the work of Jesus Christ in this world. It is continuing the work of Jesus to seek and to save, to, to love. Remember this John 3, 16 and 17. He didn't come to condemn, but to save. And so uh, that's why you can't curse the name of Jesus and claim to have the Holy Spirit. And that's why you can't claim him as Lord without the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit's purpose is to complete the work of Jesus. 
And what's the result in the in in Sin City? You guys, if y'all if y'all take some time, and I encourage you to over this series, read some more in First Corinthians. What's the result of all of this spirit work in this church? There's frankly, there's some really pretty weird stuff happening. <laughs> right? Stuff that Frankly, we don't see every day in our, in, our, in our corporate worship. There are astonishing things happening. Imagine a worship service where people are lining up to speak in tongues. Imagine a worship service where it, it's not just, just one tall, bald guy who's up teaching, but people are lining up to prophesy and preach. And imagine a worship service where people are speaking in tongues, but there are other people there who are able to interpret those tongues and tell you what's really happening. Imagine a worship service where exorcisms are happening and healings are happening and miracles are happening. What you see in this spirit-infused church is life that is heightened and intensified I, my guess is it, it'd probably be pretty hard to sleep through a worship service in Corinth. Right? They might think you're snoring. might think that's speaking in tongues. And then somebody going, you know, like, I don't know. Do you have a sense that their worship was dull? Do you think it was ordinary? Or do you get this picture of a church through the power of the Holy Spirit that was vividly alive. Now I know I'm freaking some of you out. <laughs> Maybe rightly so. My dad is a, this awesome Church of Christ guy, and I was telling him, Dad, I'm speaking on the power of the Holy Spirit. And he was like, well, I don't know if they, you know, like, he's like, okay, <laughs> you're going to tell them what? It's like, well, you know, and some of you maybe come from a more spirit-filled background, and some of you may come from, from a different faith place, and, that, and that's okay. But I want to share with you the truth of, of I, think, I think, what God is revealing in his word about the power of the Holy Spirit. I can't help but tell you the story of Nicodemus. In John chapter 3, uh, I'll just, here, I'll read it to you, and then we'll, then we'll talk about it. John records this great story with Jesus and a man named Nicodemus. He says, there was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. And after dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean? exclaimed Nicodemus. How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and become born again? All right, this is one of the greatest questions in all of scripture, right? Sorry if that's a little too graphic for you, but Nicodemus says, how can you put a bun back in the oven, right? Like, this is gross, right? And Jesus replied, hold on. He says, I assure you that no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the, what's the word? Spirit. He says, I know humans can re reproduce only human life. But the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. He says, so don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. 
And then he, Jesus already knows uh, Nicodemus's question. Nicodemus is going to ask, how are these things possible? And Jesus just says, I'll just answer before you even ask. Jesus says, well, the wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from or where it is going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. I love that. How are these things possible? Can you explain the Holy Spirit to me? Can you just tell me, how, how are we born again by the Spirit? You know, and Nicodemus is asking these earnest questions, and Jesus responds as, well, you know, it's kind of like chasing the wind. In the great way of Jesus, he's, he's, well, you don't really get to know. But you know it's there, and you know it happens. I love the, that's definitely one of the keys of this story is that, uh, and, and one of the challenges of entering into this spirit-born teaching series is every time you try to put your finger on the Holy Spirit, if I said the Holy Spirit is these three things, it would tomorrow be the fourth thing, right? We see in Acts that they decide, okay, the Holy Spirit only comes to those who are baptized. You're baptized by water, then you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, except for two chapters later when all these Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit without baptism, right? It's this mysterious thing, and it's going to defy your boxes and boundaries all the time. So to talk about the Holy Spirit, is, and, and I, I don't want to discourage you, but I want to invite you with me to chase the wind together. And the second thing I want you to see from this story is, uh, maybe, maybe I've said it already a little bit before, but uh, sometimes I meet Christians who talk about the Holy Spirit like it's, uh, like it's out-of-date milk. Like there was this thing once upon a time, that was a great thing for them back then. You know, they talk about the Holy Spirit like it had some sort of expiration date, right? Like it happened, that stuff happened then, but that, that kind of stuff can't happen today. Can it? I, don't, I didn't see an expiration date in the New Testament, by the way. I think what we should see is, uh, and, and maybe go back to those words of Jesus. Remember where he starts. he starts. He starts by talking about the Holy Spirit and talking about the kingdom. He says, he says without this spiritual birth and without the change it brings about in our life, he says, without the Spirit, he says, not only will you never see the kingdom of God, you'll never be able to enter it. And that should be an incredibly sobering idea for all of us who live under the name of Christ. And what he says is like, this whole kingdom experience is from the upwelling of the Spirit. And all of us may enter into being born of the Spirit. Just a few more words, and then I'll, I'll wrap up for today. Paul says in the, his letter to, to the Corinthians in chapter 4, verse 20, and, and I, love, I love this. He says, this kingdom of God is not just a lot of talk. It is living by God's power. 
And maybe if there was one last lesson I would have for you to know is that the Holy Spirit is power of God alive. And he goes on uh, in chapter 3, verse 16. Here's what he says. He says, don't you realize? Like, I love that word. Like, maybe that's words for you today. Like, don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in where? In Corinth, you see the kingdom of God breaking through. Through the power of the Spirit, you can see a church come vividly alive. And that same Spirit, that same life, is available to you today. Do you believe it? If you really believe that God's power was tending behind you, is, is in you, compelling you, energizing and sustaining you, what would you hold back? So I'm going to give you a couple of exercises here. and uh, just a minute, we're going to enter into a time of communion. Uh, we've got the elements of communion set up around the room, and we just encourage you to have a, have a time of meditation and prayer. Maybe it means grabbing your, uh, a couple of people and praying together. Maybe it just means a, a silent time. But we think this is sacred space for us to, to chew on the word that God has revealed to you and how he is the spirit that is being delivered to you. We want you to chew on that word and think about it and be compelled by it. And it is, it is a place not just of reflection, but a, hopefully a place of action, as we remember the actions of Jesus Christ for us. I hope you feel that spirit when you, when you take this bread and this cup. I hope you feel that same spirit compelling you to act on his behalf. And while you do this, while you enter into this space, uh, I want to give you uh, uh, two, two just easy spirit exercises. The first one uh, you're all doing already. You don't even know it. The first exercise I want you to do is just breathe. In the New Testament, the word spirit is also translated as breath or wind. The Jewish rabbis would have considered every breath you take as a profoundly spiritual act. It's how God created everything, right? He didn't create with his hands or even with his mind. He created with his And so as you enter into this communion space, I invite you to breathe. Maybe some of you haven't done enough of that this week. Overwhelmingly, we hyperventilate more than breathe. Overwhelmingly, we breathe at this, the crazy pace of our world and our schedule. That's not the kind of breathing I want you to do. But to slow down and breathe in the Spirit of God. And as you breathe, I, I want to remind you of a, of a phrase that, that Paul uses. In the Roman world, uh, uh, if you wanted to dedicate your life and give yourself completely to Caesar, what you would say is that you would say, Caesar is curios. Uh, and, and curios just means lord or master, but, but, but not just in a, in a title kind of sense, but in a kind of sense of uh, if, you would, if you said Jesus, or if you say Caesar is curious, what that means is you're placing your whole self under Caesar. 
And if you think about it, uh, what Paul says is pretty profound to this Roman city of Corinth. He says, I don't want you to say Caesar is curios. He says, instead, I want you to say Jesus is curios. I want you to say Jesus is Lord. And what he says is like, you're not going to be able to do that. I know some of you are already like, I'm going to try this. I'm just, I bet I can say it. But he says, like, there, there's no way for you to say those words in the kind of self-reflecting, self-sacrificing way of placing yourself completely under the authority of Jesus without the help and the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. So as you take communion and as you breathe, maybe put the words of that, maybe the oldest Christian creed in your mouth again. Simply say those words. Jesus is Lord. And recognize again the spirit that he has put inside of you. Let's pray. Father God, come before you this morning and just uh, ask, uh, ask your spirit to fill us. Help us to breathe. Help us to recognize that, that you aren't somewhere else, somehow occupied with something else. But God, right now, your, your, your Holy Spirit is here, available to us, planted in each and every one of us. Father God, maybe there are some of us that, uh, that need to be born again. And God, we've got, we've got water, and uh, we know your spirit is here. And so God, if you're compelling, uh, if you're compelling someone to give their life to you in, in baptism, then God, we want to recognize that, and, and we're here. We're here for that. And for those of us who have been baptized, Father God, help us to recognize the spirit that we've been given. It is a spirit. It's not just talk but it is a spirit of power. And help us to recognize the Spirit's uh, compulsion in us to accomplish the work of Jesus. I can think of no better place for us to reflect on the, the power and movement of the Spirit than as we take the, the, the bread and the cup which represent the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us. Father, God, that work that was begun in Him can and is being completed in us through the work of your spirit. So Father God, maybe some of us have been in a place of inactivity for too long. Maybe as we breathe in your spirit, your will for us today, you compel us to move and to act on your behalf. Father God, we recognize that this spirit is first and foremost a spirit of love. So help us to adopt a manner and a position in a life of love built completely around the truth of who you are. Father God, we love you. And in your son Jesus' name, everyone together says, Amen. I invite you to enjoy a time of communion together.